This is the Diet of Brussels. What does the uh, European Council's agreement actually contain? Um, this is going to be a bit of a, a longer episode than normal because, uh, as you can imagine, there's quite a lot in the text. But I think it's useful just for us to run through some of the detail of what there is. Um, you remember that a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about what uh, Donald Tusk's proposals uh, contain. Uh, contained in his uh, draft uh, document. Now, what we have uh, agreed uh, in Brussels uh, on Friday the 19th is very similar to that text. And as we talked about, one of the reasons for that is that by making that text public, Tusk was uh, signalling that this was going to be... Uh, something that had got broad agreement already and that it made it harder for anybody to really change uh, those provisions very substantially. So if you do a line-by-line -line comparison, as I've been doing uh, for fun uh, Sunday morning, uh, you'll see that there's actually very little in the text that has changed. So let's just talk a, a bit about what we have got. Maybe the starting point here is just to think a bit about the, the introductory language. Um, uh, that's always seems a... a marginal and to some extent it's it's not about detail but it sets out some key principles first thing here is uh, it talks about uh, mutually satisfactory solutions it talks about uh, this being something which is fully compatible with the treaty so again this idea that Tusk set out uh, in his uh, original set of proposals is really uh, very much within the framework of the treaties importantly also it stresses that this is uh, legally binding as, as a decision and heads of state and government so the members of the European Council agree that this is uh, something can be amended or appealed only by common accord so uh, the concerns that Cameron had set out uh, in his uh, uh, original demands and his letter to Tusk back in the autumn uh, to a degree are respected here so this is not simply a declaration and well we can change our minds down the line it's that uh, all member states need to uh, agree that. Final point, I think, from this introductory section is that this is something which is only going to come into effect when the UK announces that uh, it wants to stay within the EU. So until the referendum uh, result is known, so presumably on the Friday, uh, the 24th of June, at that point the UK would announce to the council that this is uh, its decision. And at that point, all of these things would happen. So don't expect any of the things that come uh, in the late, later part of the document to happen, particularly until after June. And the legislative proposals, uh, we wouldn't expect really uh, to be coming before them because some of them will require close consultation and discussion. Uh, also, it's worth saying that this is uh, conditional, that this is uh, uh, something that all collapses if the UK votes to leave. And this is, I think, important, that uh, the whole two referendum strategy that we've uh, seen talked about at different points, I think, is still a concern. Um, so if there is uh, an, a vote to leave, uh, all of this is really falling by the wayside and we start pretty much from afresh. So what's the, what's the detail uh, in all of this? Um, there are four key areas. 
uh, and we can go through them uh, section by section. The first one is around economic governance, and this is primarily about relations between the Eurozone and non-Eurozone members. Again, the key principle here is one of mutual respect and uh, sincere cooperation. So these are uh, concepts already uh, embedded in the treaties. Basically, it's saying, you don't mess us around, we won't mess you around. Um, what we have here is uh, an attempt on the one part by uh, Eurozone members, uh, particularly from French concerns, to make sure that this is very much uh, limited. Um, that uh, here we have uh, some references now to the single rule book, which relates to uh, financial institutions, credit institutions, um, making sure that this is outside the scope of uh, the, uh, the potential mechanism that's there. On the other hand, you've got the UK, which was able to successfully uh, get uh, a commitment which said that any one member state can um, raise a, a reasoned uh, opinion about why it disagrees with a piece of legislation affecting the Eurozone. And that will then lead to a discussion. Now, a discussion clearly is not the same as a veto. Uh, the Council President uh, uh, and the European Council President commits to trying to find an accommodation, but uh, there's no uh, block that is automatic, but at the very least it means that the UK is now in a position where it can raise uh, uh, concerns uh, about pieces of legislation. Alongside that, uh, I think we've got to note that uh, there's not a, a huge amount uh, here. There's a reminder that uh, member states outside of the euro are not committed in any way to provide emergency or crisis funding, um, which had been a, a particular bugbear uh, in the past couple of years. So that's now uh, enshrined. And basically, it's uh, about saying, you know, uh, we each have our spheres of uh, uh, activity, and we will try not to tread on each other's toes. So uh, particularly the, the member meetings of the European, of the Euro group, uh, doesn't uh, preempt the power of the uh, council meeting. Second area is uh, perhaps the, the briefest and the vaguest, which is around competitiveness. Basically, it's saying competitiveness, competitiveness is good, uh, that we will uh, pursue that, we'll try and strengthen the single markets, that uh, we'll also introduce these uh, mechanisms about uh, implementing uh, subsidiarity, so checking that uh, legislation couldn't be done better at the national level rather than the European, uh, and also about burden uh, reduction. So thinking particularly about smaller businesses, making sure that they don't have to do things that are unnecessary or impractical. But largely this section is uh, declaratory um, uh, and uh, has always been so. Much less uh, declaratory is the section around uh, sovereignty, which is the third section. Now here we've got moved right up to front of the text, uh, went from before where it wasn't, saying that the UK is not committed to further political integration within the EU. Now that's quite a strong statement, and again, using that as your opening uh, gambit really frames the discussion. Um, also importantly here are uh, there's a commitment that at the next treaty revision, uh, this uh, will be uh, incorporated into the treaty text. So 
again, promissory, but uh, I think an important one because I think still for a lot of member states, the language around ever closer union is uh, symbolically important. And as uh, the council has made clear before, uh, and has made clear again, references to an ever close union don't in of themselves offer a legal basis. But balanced against that, a reminder that you know this means that uh, the treaties still do state very clearly what member states have committed to, uh, that uh, opting out of uh, ever closer union, which they argue doesn't really mean anything in of itself, doesn't mean you get to opt out of anything else. What's uh, substantively coming out of this really is that um, the pursuit of subsidiarity, which has already been mentioned as a competitiveness, is something that continues, that uh, everyone will make sure that uh, the EU does uh, only what uh, it has to do and or what it can do that member states can't. And we have this uh, embedding of the, the red card procedure. So if uh, 55% of uh, national parliaments uh, say that they have a problem with a piece of legislation, this then triggers a discussion in the council and a discontinuation of the legislation, unless there's uh, some kind of uh, amendments taken in consideration of these provisions. Now, as I've talked about in a, another podcast, uh, if you've got more than half of national parliaments having a problem with a piece of legislation, you would imagine that more than half of member states would have a problem with it, which means that uh, it would be unlikely to pass in any case. So I think we have to be cautious about uh, what this uh, actually means in substantive terms, but I think we should still note that it's now something which is an extension of uh, current provisions. All of which brings us then to the, the most uh, high-profile pro, and contentious part, particularly in the UK, which is around social benefits and free movement. A lot of the language here in the agreement of the European Council is about reminding member states that they already have a considerable degree of flexibility. Um, that uh, whether it's in relation to treaty provisions uh, or... Uh, secondary legislation, there are already a number of exemptions and exclusions and limitations that can be brought into place. Now, um, one of those areas uh, which uh, Tusk's proposals have brought forward, which hadn't really been thought about much before, was that member states can uh, take action to um, limit free movement between uh, member states when there is an abuse of rights or there is forged documents, marriages convenience, uh, serious uh, and genuine threats to, to public policy or security. So all the kinds of things that people like uh, Theresa May has talked about over the years as being uh, uh, problematic. So that's uh, essentially a clarification and so there's sorted uh, declarations to that effect and the Commission will present further declarations to clarify that this is so. What's new though are two key areas. One is uh, the area of child benefits which is something that wasn't uh, discussed very much in the original thing and there is a original proposal but then there is a more substantive uh, provision. What this says is that uh, member state nationals who move to another member state uh, can have a child benefit uh, linked to index linked to the cost of living in their home member state when the children live there. 
rather than having come with them to the new member state. Now, this is what uh, the British had uh, asked for, and this was what I think probably the, the one uh, big area of surprise that had come through. However, that has got limited uh, to a considerable extent in uh, the treaty, in the, in the agreement that we have. First of all, it says now that this is something that will only come in um, from 2020. So it's uh, not for now. Uh, secondly, it's an option to index link, so it's not uh, a requirement that this happens. So this remains uh, potentially uh, very uh, uneven between different countries. And also, it makes very clear that this is not the thin end of a wedge. It says that this is not something that is going to be extended to other uh, pieces of social benefit, for example, pen pensions. And this was a real concern of Central East European countries, that you start with child benefit and then it moves on to uh, other areas of benefit. So this will require legislation being brought forward. Um, so 2020 is also probably the earliest date that you can get the necessary uh, legislation through the process. Second big area here is around uh, the safeguard mechanism, so limiting uh, in-work benefits uh, to EU citizens. The detail here is really very much as was previously discussed. A member state can raise uh, a concern that this is uh, it's under undue pressure over an extended period of time. Uh, it does that to the Commission and to the Council. They can then uh, bring forward uh, a piece of uh, a decision which then says that uh, the Council is allowed to make a, uh, a decision, a recommendation that you're allowed to have a restriction on those benefits. Now those benefits again will be uh, temporary in their restriction and there'll be a progressive lifting of the restriction. What has changed, or at least has been clarified, is that this will be for a single period of seven years. So no possibilities of extension, but longer than the original uh, block of time that uh, had uh, been mooted at uh, different points by different people. Now, uh, again, this will need to be something that needs to come through a legislative process. I think what's important, though, is that the British uh, situation is clarified a bit. The original proposal said that the UK already meets this condition. Um, it still says that, but now it notes that th it meets that condition because it hadn't made full use of the transition periods that were available to it when new countries were joining. So essentially it's making a particular argument. It's saying the UK is one of uh, only a very small number of countries that uh, in 2004, because it immediately opened its uh, borders to uh, Central Eastern European countries when they became member states, has had this long period of uh, uh, excessive flow of uh, EU nationals. And so that reason is why it qualifies. Now that's important, uh, not so much for the UK, but because it limits the ability of other member states to make the same claim. So uh, Again, this is uh, something I think has been driven by Central East European countries who are worried that uh, once one country starts doing this, other countries will follow. And so by being very clear of saying, here's the situation, here's the reason, you're essentially saying, 
this is for the UK uh, in the first instance, and somebody will have to come up with a very good argument about why. And I think this was something that was also a bit of a concern in the UK, that if anyone started uh, presenting a legal challenge to this uh, proposal, uh, they needed to have something to hold on to. That's really the substance of uh, what we have in this document. Um, I think a number of things are, are worth noting from this. First, it shows the success of Tusk's and I think uh, Cameron's approach of saying we put this out there and we make it very hard for anyone to uh, mess about. I and mean, you could wonder indeed that given the extent of the changes, which are not that big, uh, why it took two days of very hard negotiation to uh, reach this uh, agreement. Second point to note is that this is not a UK-specific uh, settlement. Even though it's all framed as a new settlement for the UK within the EU, there is really only one place where the UK is marked out for special treatment, and that is where uh, you have this reference that I've just talked about to the UK already meeting the uh, criteria for accessing the safeguard agreement. Otherwise, everything else is couched in the language of a member state, the member states, uh, and these things are open to everyone. So when we talk about a new deal for the UK, I think we have to be careful uh, that this also opens up uh, new rights and uh, possibilities for other member states. And I think this is very much uh, what we would have expected, that the EU is not habitually comfortable with giving individual and specific countries rights without giving them to other people as well. And you can see also how that uh, helps to limit what the UK might demand, that it says, well, if you have this, other people have to have it too. Finally, I think it, it represents... Uh, a substantial commitment on the part of the EU uh, to uh, try and help the UK get through this uh, uh, referendum. Uh, I think there's a broad recognition by other member states that UK membership is desirable, is something that is wanted. And as much as possible within the framework of the treaty, um, which I think is also an important point to stress, uh, it has made as much accommodation as it can. That's really the, uh, the substance of what we'll talk about. We'll look in other episodes at uh, some particular aspects that come out of this and uh, the reaction. But uh, I hope you find that useful.